Welcome everyone to the next episode of Engineer Your Career. On the show today, we have Prashanth Rao. Prashanth is a data scientist and software developer based in Vancouver, Canada. He has three degrees, a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from the National Institute of Technology, India, a master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Michigan in the U.S., and another master's degree in computer science from Simon Fraser University in Canada. Prashanth's diverse academic background led him to a job as a consulting engineer at Roush Industries in Michigan, where he worked for several years running high-performance numerical simulations for aerospace and thermal design problems in the transportation industry. Eventually, through his love of computers and open-ended problem-solving, he was drawn to the world of data science and machine learning. He now works as a research assistant at his university, using techniques from big data, natural language processing, and machine learning to study news article content at scale. In his free time, Prashanth enjoys reading, working on fun side projects in Python, and the Linux command line as well as wandering along scenic hike trails. Prashant, welcome to EYC. Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of Engineer Your Career. Really excited for the show today. Thanks, for everyone, for tuning in. As always, I have Brennan Timrak on. Brennan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to be here. Your yeah. sound is really excited today. Like, Dude, I am, man. That's Dude, good. It's a good day. I feel like spring, spring is springing. Sprunging. I know. Spring is so, sprung. I don't yeah, know. Life is good. It's a bad phrase. Know. How are you doing, man? It looks like your hair is getting a little crazy. It is getting a little crazy. We are we're recording this in second week of May. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on when you're listening to this, yeah, I'm like like Eight weeks two. I'm like a month and a half, two <laughs> two months into a, a, a COVID uh, hair growth. So it's getting a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Long we'll, hair, we'll just don't see. Care. Good to go. It, exactly. Exactly. I don't. No one has to see me. We don't do video conferences for work, so it's all audio. So. Just my That's wife. So interesting, man. That's, so you told me that, and I was like, "What? No, no video on conference calls." Like, I think I don't know. I'm curious if people's thoughts. Like, if a, a lot of companies are doing that, but I always thought like then companies would like force like video to be like, "Hey, make sure he's not, you know, make sure he has nope. pants on or something. Make sure he's actually no, nope, just audio nope. and screen share. That's all we do. No really? video. Yeah. Do you find that takes away? Do you, do you like do you do you do you want video? Um. I could see how it could be beneficial, but it's one of those things of like, even when we're all in a conference room together. So let's say you have a meeting where five people are in a room together and five people are, are like go calling in. Like mm-hmm. the five people in the room are half the time are just staring at their computers anyway. Like okay. it's not like yeah. we're all looking at each other. So sure. yeah, whatever. well, I've also forgot about the call in culture too. I, how in general, you, you just have a lot of people calling in anyway. So yeah, probably no different than that. Huh. Well, interesting. Seems like a new. A new space. And I, I guess related to that, we have a, someone who's going to talk a lot about a new space, Prashanth Rao. Mm-hmm. Welcome, man. Glad you're here. How you doing? Hey, guys. Nice to talk to you. And yeah, glad to be here. Dude, yeah. We're, we're excited to hear, man. Sounds like yeah. you're you're on the edge of new space in addition to quarantine COVID new space. But um, yeah, so we probably should just get right into it, man. I guess if you could start, can you just kind of walk us through your origin story? I guess tell us to, you know, you're, you've had a lot, of, a lot of different zigs and zags in your career, and I'm excited to hear about them. Definitely. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess I'll start back right from the beginning. Um, so uh, I'm currently in Vancouver, Canada, but yeah, it's been quite the road for me to get here. I'm uh, originally from India. Uh, I did my mechanical engineering in undergrad uh, back in India. And the reason I did mechanical engineering was because I was always fascinated by the underlying physics of how you know systems behave in the real world. I used to play a lot of computer games, video games, so I was into all of that kind of stuff. Um, I briefly had some exposure to coding or programming uh, back in high school. I, I did a bit of basic back in the day and then some C++ and I really did not enjoy it at the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
once I entered undergrad, actually, I got a rude awakening because um, in my first intro to programming class in undergrad, um, you, you have the usual uh, computer science 101 for every major, right? So I had to learn C, the language C, and uh, it was absolutely a nightmare. I barely scraped through that course. <laughs> and for the rest of my undergrad, I stayed as far, as I, as far away as I could from, from coding of any kind. <laughs> um, I did a bit of MATLAB here and there for some projects, but nothing more. So um, it might be surprising you know, to hear that, OK, a person like me ended up where I am today. But yeah, I'll explain how I got there. Um, so through the rest of my undergrad, I um, Focus more on learning about design and computer simulation, specifically with with regard to mechanical engineering. And I, I focused on building stuff. Uh, I was part of the SAE Baja team. So, you know, we build a off-road vehicle as part of a competition. That was a load of fun. Um, so from that point, actually, I got really interested in uh, aerody aerodynamics, the science of aerodynamics. And I, was, I wasn't ready to jump into a boring desk job just after I graduated. So I applied to a number of uh, graduate programs, uh, mostly in the US and Canada. Uh, because I knew I was well aware that this is a, if I wanted to study anything related to that, this is a place to be. Um, so that's how I ended up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So in the University of Michigan uh, for a master's in aerospace engineering, uh, and this was way back in 2009. Um, and in my time at Michigan, I was really lucky. So um, I found a very interesting project to work on with a professor, uh, Dr. Martins. Uh, it was on aircraft design and optimization. The focus was kind of aerodynamics and uh, optimization towards the aerodynamics and structure of an aircraft. Uh, but it was a very coding heavy and programming heavy uh, project. So it was because it was all simulated on a computer and an optimization algorithm was kind of simulating how the wings and the structure of the plane was going to be laid out for performance. Um, so that was actually my first ex real deep dive and exposure to, uh, you know, like serious computing, like real programming and go going deep into the weeds. Uh, and this actually, actually, uh, when I uh, finished my, uh, towards the end of my master's, actually I felt that this defined the path for the rest of my career because uh, in many ways, the language that I was working on, I learned Python, the language, the Python programming language uh, in this project. And uh, I feel like that really kickstarted my, my programming life because till then I didn't enjoy coding that much. I was you know kind of okay with it. But then once I got deep into this, I, when I understood the applications of how uh, when you write a program, you can actually use it to not just you know solve math problems, but also do something really deeply physical that that affects the real world. Uh, that that really opened my eyes. And uh, so yeah, I feel like that kind of laid the foundation for where I was going to go after that. And after I got my masters, uh, I began working at Roush in Michigan, uh, which is an automotive consulting company, uh, and that's actually where I met Troy. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and at Roush, I mainly worked on simulation and modeling for vehicle aerodynamics and thermal design problems for all kinds of vehicle subsystems. Um, it was, again, a very compute-heavy job. Uh, I got the chance to work on uh, Linux clusters, which was really interesting. Um, it was pretty deep dive into, again, very technical concepts of uh, low-level parts of how computers behave, um, how distributed computing works you know, in software, because when you simulate a real-world system, like a airflow over a car. It's not something you can run on your local machine. It's, it's going to be very compute, uh, compute heavy. So it, it needs to run on a cluster of machines. And you need to figure out how the computation is distributed across all these machines. Um, so I began writing some code to process some of that data, the data that I got as output. So I, I was always keeping my programming skills sharp during that time. And uh, in 2012, there was a really interesting event in the world of data science and machine learning. Um, there was a major research breakthrough in image recognition, uh, which is a very age-old task in machine learning. And there was a, the breakthrough basically massively improved on earlier results. And this was using neural networks. Uh, I, I'm guessing people have heard of that, the term. 
And also during this time, a few years before that, uh, the Python language ecosystem, uh, it was really maturing towards the space, towards machine learning, towards building customized libraries that help people uh, perform machine learning tasks. Now, although I didn't know much about what machine learning was all about, uh, when I read about these updates and developments, I realized I already have the skill in the Python language. And um, the fact that the language exploded onto the mainstream in the industry after that, um, it was just a fringe language before this. Uh, it was mostly used by researchers and scientists. But then once machine learning caught on and became mainstream in an industry like maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, Python was everywhere. It was literally the, you know, the in thing. So um, that's, uh, that was where I was sitting from at my desk thinking about all these things. And um, considering where I was, uh, I began realizing that, you know what, um, I might think about how my skills may be applicable in the other space as well. I didn't obviously make a decision to switch careers overnight. But, but I began following the trends in machine learning and data science very closely after that, uh, for a few years after that. Um, I tried to understand some of the math. I began reading as many blogs and you know technical posts as I could. I, I was listening to podcasts as well. Uh, podcasts are a great source of information for you know tech, techie stuff like this. And believe it or not, um, I actually felt that some of my job duties uh, as a consulting engineer at Rausch, uh, even though it was nothing related to m machine learning or data science, um, some of the uh, discipline and some of the, the kind of steps that I used to do on a daily basis at Rausch, uh, they were very similar to what a data scientist does, which uh, is kind of surprising. It was even surprising to me at the time. Uh, for example, when I was working as a, in consulting and uh, we, had, we had to design and analyze uh, vehicle systems. Part of that involves getting some CAD, which is like a design of a, a part or a subsystem, uh, which is a drawing converted to 3D shapes. And then we kind of clean that the 3D shapes, kind of uh, build a model, like a 3D model uh, that actually you can, you can apply physics uh, models to and, and run a simulation on that. Data is very similar. Essentially, when you're working with real world data, uh, you're essentially getting a raw data from some source and you're cleaning that data and building a model on that data and, and visualizing some of the results. So uh, in terms of discipline and the kind of thinking that I had, I already had an analytical way of you know, thinking about things. Um, so I was actually really uh, uh, amazed to learn that, uh, you know what, I'm actually on the right track here. Um, so, so yeah, I think in 2017 is when I took the radical decision that, you know what, uh, in the long term, in the long run, I see myself really passionate and you know, driven by this uh, field. And uh, I began asking myself what, what really drives me on a daily basis. Uh, it was more about... It was not so much about designing cars or you know um, working with vehicles. That was not the main you know like factor that uh, brought me to work you know happy every day. Uh, it was more about working with a computer, figuring out the uh, open-ended problem to solve. Uh, and many of those skills were actually transferable to data science, which is where I decided you know I think I might want to go back and uh, formalize my knowledge and kind of go back to school. Uh, so which is where I uh, applied for a second master's, <laughs> uh, and this time I applied to Canada uh, mainly because of. Um, cost reasons. Uh, the education in Canada is definitely way, way cheaper than in the US. Um, and I was lucky to get into a program here in Vancouver. Um, so I started that program in 2018, and I just finished that last month. So fast forward all those years, and here I am oh, today. Congratulations, uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's, that's huge. That's, it's, yeah, wow. To, to, you know, I think two and a half years ago, you'd be well, it's, you know, you're just deciding, just deciding to do it, you know, and those exactly. days happen and it's the last day at Roush and then it's the first day there and there's all the move and all that excitement. And then now to finally be closing that, that chapter, dude, that's so awesome. Absolutely. There's, there's, wow, man. There's a ton of great stuff there. Um, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. do my best here, yeah. um, but I want to, I want to track us back and then kind of walk through that and ask, sure. ask some questions related to that. Cause it just seems, yeah, 
Oh, so awesome. So I guess I'm going to start with um, Prashanth, junior, senior year of, of undergrad. And right. you're like, hey, I'm, I'm going to make this jump to master's. Um, you talked a little bit about it. Okay, U.S., Canada, definitely the place to be. Wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit more to that transition about like, I guess, how, how did you get to Michigan? Did you just Google good aerospace school? Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I guess, how did, how, what did what did that process look like? And I guess, what, what were some of the things maybe you thought you did well and some things that you'd probably do different if you were to do sure. it again? Uh, so there were two things, actually, that I, I used to, uh, the undergrad that I was in, um, it was National Institute of Technology, um, and it was in the southern part of India. And actually, the thing about it is uh, a lot of the students there are quite ambitious. Um, many of them actually aim to go abroad for PhDs and like further studies way, way up early on in their uh, yeah, phase. Sure. So I already had a lot of uh, friends there who I've spoken to before. The name uh, Ann Arbor had come up actually a few times before that. So I, it's, it, I didn't have to Google Ann Arbor before I knew what it was. I already, I already heard it through word of mouth. And, and the University of Michigan is pretty much world world renowned institution. So it's um, I think once once you hear the name, you're not going to really forget it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was one of the many uh, places I applied to. I applied to about I think ten or twelve uh, places, okay. and I got accepted actually into a couple more, like two or three different other universities. But just considering the the wide range of factors, um, Michigan's aerospace department is really really good, which I think is top five in the U.S. even today, um, and. I had uh, some some friends and colleagues and seniors from my uh, undergrad program who were already in Michigan at the time, uh, and some of my friends uh, were actually going to Michigan along with me from my undergrad. So I thought uh, putting all those things together, it, it made perfect sense for me to go there. But but to answer your question about how I even you know made the decision for aerospace in Michigan, um, I think it, it was more about um, the fact that in the U.S. I was aware that there are like first tier, second tier kind of universities, you know, the top Ivy leagues and the really really top ones. Um, I was kind of realistic about where I saw my prospects, right? So I didn't obviously apply to all the MITs and you know Stanford's and all that. Um, if if I really felt I was you know um, suited to that kind of lifestyle or that kind of ambition, I might have really considered it. But to be honest, Michigan was it was it was in no way a step down for me, even in my head at that time. And looking back, I have no regrets at all. I mean, considering where I was in Michigan, I mean it was it was the best place for me to learn. I met some really really intelligent people there. And in many ways, I think I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't end up in Michigan. Sure. No, that's awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you decided to go into aerospace engineering. And obviously, like, as you explained, you didn't end up there. But you initially yeah. had this moment in your undergrad where you decided that was what you wanted to pursue. And maybe that would have been what you wanted to do for the rest of your career. Um, can you, I mean, can you remember going back at all what it was, like, specifically that really kind of triggered the interest in, hey, this is this is a specialty I want to, to dive into for now, at least? Absolutely. Um, so I'd always been interested in um, aircraft and, and aer aviation in general. Um, you know, the interesting thing about when you hear people talk about how much they love planes, right? One of the first things you hear is they you you see how they tell you how they want to learn how to fly a plane. They want to become a pilot and get a pilot's license and so on. For me, it was literally never the case. Like I at no point did I ever want to become a pilot or learn how to fly. And part of the reason is I don't enjoy being in a plane that much, which is really ironic. <laughs> um, but uh, the the fascinating part about planes for me is the fact that they're even in the air in the first place. I mean, but I, this fascination began when I was you know, I think in middle school or even younger than that. Um, and the more I read up about it and the more in your encyclopedias or whatever I end up looking up on um, how planes fly, the understanding the physics and the math behind how it works and how planes are designed from the ground up, that was what really uh, attracted me to it. And uh, when it comes to aerospace engineering, um, 
typically there are, I mean, actually there are three uh, branches of aerospace. Essentially, you have the structural side, which design, designs the structural component of the aircraft. You have the aerodynamic side, and then you have the control system side, which is very electronics heavy uh, from that standpoint. So I was very clear that I was interested only in one aspect of aerospace engineering, which is the aerodynamic side of things. And um, I guess when I was naive and a bit younger, uh, I had the idea that, you know, maybe uh, working in a large company like Boeing would be a really good long-term career option for me. And I mean, I know I've heard of many people who've done that. So it wasn't something like completely out of the, you know, out of the blue. Um, so I had that kind of idea that, uh, in my head at that point. And obviously I didn't really, you know, have that, um, it was not hard set in my brain that I have to work in a company like Boeing or nothing else works or something like that. And things just organically moved in a certain way once I was in Michigan and the people I spoke to. Um, and the fact that I had this job opportunity once I graduated, I spoke to my manager at the time. Um, I felt like, yeah, it was uh, consulting is a good starting point in the sense that um, you are never tied to a very specific project from the ground up. You're always kind of um, exposed to different range of problems and depending on your skills you can actually get, get moved around and kind of learn what you're good at so I think that's kind of where I uh, ended up at the start okay yeah no, I think it yeah aerospace it's, it seems incredibly complex for something that we take yeah. so for so granted today just hopping on a plane it's definitely one of one of the major intense complex engineering feats that we just think is easy or I would say the average person probably thinks is easy but it's far from that um, so yeah I guess one quick question before we transition to your time at Roush. Um, was your master's um, course-based or research-based or meaning did you have research-only credits or did you have, or was it all coursework? Good point. Um, so Michigan actually, uh, they gave me an option to do a pure course-based master's if I wanted to. Uh, but I was a little bit more, I mean, I wanted to go deeper into the science of it. So I actually looked up actively uh, working with professors on on something more research-heavy. And that's how I ended up doing that project in, in Python and learning the language and so on. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. I think we had talked a little bit in a couple of episodes ago about the idea of getting a master's. And I think that a similar theme that you're saying here, you know, if you have an interest to dive technically, exactly. going to a research type project is going to give you the time and opportunity to do that. Um, whereas a coursework master's might be more general broad, which is still good for people. It really depends on what you want to do. But it Absolutely. sounds like you were interested in getting more technical on a specific thing in that master's with the report type or research option allowed you to do exactly. that. And to be honest, I think uh, the problem with coursework is um, it's too, too it, it runs by really quickly, right? In a semester, you just have four months and you really can't go deep into any topic in four months. I mean, you can only do a very cursory kind of review of that, of that topic. And I think it's important to point out that like without doing the, the research side of it, you wouldn't have discovered this area that you were really passionate about. Exactly. And if you don't get to do that in the coursework, the coursework's laid out for you ahead of time. You may get to, you may get to do some programming. You may get to work on something, but you're really a, re, a research topic can be more than just, Hey, we're going to work on aerodynamics. It's exactly. you're going to do aerodynamics, but how are you going to do that? You're going to program, you're going to create models. You're going to do all these things that right. lead up to it, Absolutely. which you're going to miss out on a, a coursework option. But exactly. for some people, coursework option could be the, the best thing. Right. right. And, you know, this we'll, we'll get into coding, I'm sure, here more, but, like, this idea of, like, if you want to learn how to code, like, have a problem that you want to solve. Absolutely. Don't, don't just go, you can't learn coding by going and learning coding. Like, you're never going to learn it because you're never going to have a passion. But if you have an end goal where you need to get and you know programming is the way to get there, you're going to learn so much more as you go than <laughs> if you're just like, well, I need to learn about classes today. And then you fall asleep to the YouTube video you watch and then you're like, well, okay. I, anyways, side point. Okay. So that, that, that's actually, before we move on, that's yeah. a really good point you brought up. Um, actually, just to give you a bit of a background again, right? I was telling you about how I did not enjoy programming in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this uh, 
a C++ compiler. It was a Borland C++, I think. Um, yeah, it was on that Windows. was it back in the day. Yeah, it was an absolute nightmare. And they used to have this blue screen, like a blue editor screen, <laughs> like sh- shining at you in the face. And it used to just give me a headache after 10 minutes of using it. And fast, fast forward 10 years from there, and editors have evolved, right? Text editors that you type on, they've become so much better. You can't even compare what we use today with what, what they were like 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I feel like a lot of, lot of learning how to code is not just about identifying the problem, but also, you know, n- knowing what kind of tools exist out there and learning the ecosystem around that. And that comes by identifying a good problem to work on. You're never going to learn that just by just sitting at a computer and opening a tutorial. Right. All right. So, yeah. So you, you start to, you, at this point, you're just finished your master's in aerospace at, from Michigan. You have gotten into programming Python. Um, you have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and you start at Roush, an engineering consulting company, mostly automotive space, um, sometimes not so much, but yeah. mostly automotive. Um, you sit down, you're uh, a systems analyst one and mm-hmm. what are you doing? What's what's the day to day like? What like how? Yeah, just talk us through what it's like to be in those shoes. Sure. Um, so yeah, it was it was really a eye opening experience for me to work. To be honest, that was my first ever paid job. I'm one of those people who didn't get my first job until after my master's degree. <laughs> so yeah, it was a huge jump for me. And um, my, the first project I worked on was again completely out of the ordinary. That something that you wouldn't expect. Uh, it was on amusement park ride vehicles. You know, Roush does a lot of work with uh, Disney and Universal and many of the other parks out there. So um, this was a very specific ride vehicle that had some um, analysis work that was being done computationally. And they were looking at you know ways to run different kind of models on it, uh, simulate the loads that were acting on it. Well, talk, uh, to... talk a little bit more about that. I mean, if there's a project, yeah. like, I guess, like, can you tell us, like, how, sure. how was the domain presented to you what, and what questions were sure. being asked and what was the expectation of answers that you'd get out? Sure. Um, so in a project like this, basically um, a company, uh, amusement park company, um, they, they're interested in deploying or designing a ride uh, in a new park of theirs. And um, that ride could be completely specific to a specific a location, right? Not The same ride doesn't exist in every single park of that company. So um, depending on the kind of um, intensity of the ride, as you call it, um, they, they, they might have a different range of loads that the vehicle is subjected to. So if it's like a uh, I'm not sure if you know about the Harry Potter ride in uh, Disney, oh, sorry, in uh, Universal Studios, Orlando. Um, so that's basically a pretty, um, not that intense ride, but uh, essentially you sit in a vehicle and it kind of moves you around, flops you up and down, uh, moves you through the castle, I believe. So uh, that was one of the vehicles that actually Roush worked on uh, before I got there. And uh, they had other vehicles with Disney as well. So essentially um, the way the project is presented is the company who is, building the right, they come to Roush and they pro- uh, present a list of load loading scenarios that the, the vehicle is exposed to. And uh, Roush is kind of responsible for ensuring that the, the design of the vehicle, the materials it's made of, the connections that it has, welds, the bolts, and all of that, um, they're all strong enough to withstand those loads and be simulate, simulated on a computer through a range of scenarios, as, as uh, varied as a range can be, um, and then verify that those lo- uh, the vehicle maintains its integrity throughout the whole whole uh, thing. And the challenging part about this is the, the kind of reporting that needs to be done. Um, you can imagine that this is the safety standards for these are extremely intense. Uh, actually, there as uh, there aerospace grade safety uh, standards, much more than automotive. And the main reason for that, obviously, is you don't want any kind of mishaps or accidents in in, in a ride. <laughs> Um, so, so the safety standards are so stringent and the kind of reports that we need to make, we have like a 30% report, a 60% report. So based on the design stage, 
um, we have to kind of um, formalize the design and, and freeze freeze the analysis at that point and kind of report all our findings to that point. Each of those reports was like three or 400 pages long. And to be honest, I was new to all of this. I had never worked in this area before. So I, I completely relied on people who were, you know, my colleagues and seniors in, in the company to help me out. And they were really, really like uh, open and forthcoming and welcoming overall. Whew, yeah, those, yeah, there's definitely long reports we made, but yeah, three or 400 pages. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's funny to me because like you make those, right? It's a huge effort to make them. But Absolutely. there's also just a huge effort to read and comprehend them, right? Oh I my mean, God, it's yeah. Like, it, it, it used to take like multiple weeks to even verify that some of the numbers we put in there were actually correct. Yeah. 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 And to think that this is this is for a ride at amusement park too. Like right. this isn't necessarily a, a mass produced item or something like I mean, as you said, it's even up to like air, airline standards or airplane standards. So yeah. I mean I, I think that's pretty cool though. You show up your your you know, your first day in the job or whatever and it's hey, work on this project, which yeah. is not not related at all to aerospace <laughs> and what you've been doing. It's it's amusement park rides. Let's, let's do something fun. Um, so really different. In, similar. I don't know. There's definitely something, you know, in, in social in society that's worries about, you know, more catastrophic events, right? You look at the risk of getting in your car and dying, it's really high exactly. relative to getting onto an airplane. Like you're you're much safer traveling on an airplane than you are driving down the road. Yet there's something to the idea of like having someone potentially die on an airplane crash, like the, that just seems more horrific exactly. than the idea of dying in a car. And the same is true for riding at an amusement park too, right? Exactly. So there are interesting societal pressures that push engineers to have different criteria of pass fail for exactly. their occupation. Um, Absolutely. But I don't know. That's, that's society. That's people. That's emotions. Let's get away from that. We're engineers. <laughs> Go back to the data where we're comfortable. <laughs> What are like some of the, the tools you are using in doing this? I know sometimes we can really get stuck on like, the, what are the tools you're using? What programs are you using? Especially like when you see a job application exactly. or a posting for like, come be an analysis engineer. You got to have five years of ANSYS and five years of whatever else and all these things. Like for you, did that have any importance in what you were actually doing? Or was it more like, I know the fundamentals. I know like the underlying principles of all this, I can learn the rest of what I need to learn. Absolutely. So uh, the good thing about Roush and a lot of other companies, actually, um, they are very clear that software is not, the kind of tools that you use are not important. It's more about understanding the physics and the fundamentals. Uh, and I, I knew certain tools. I knew ANSYS and a couple of other tools before I joined. Um, so I was not really worried about, you know, the, the ability to learn those tools. It was more about, do I even understand what, you know, amusement park rides are all about? Um, to, which, to be fair, they didn't expect me to, again, be an expert in because I couldn't be expected to be an expert, right? So, um, yeah, so we were using a lot of commercial software, not necessarily ANSYS, but a lot of the competitors of ANSYS. Um, but a part of the work involved downstream custom uh, analysis that we used to do that were outside of the scope of commercial software. And that's where, again, my Python programming skills came in very handy because uh, we, used to write, we used to write scripts to kind of automate um, some of the numerical calculations done on these um, results. And a lot of these results were actually output in the form of log files, like massive, massive log files that just get dumped out by a software program. And um, challenge was basically how to uh, extract relevant data from that and kind of use those numbers and process them for specific uh, tasks for you know amusement park ride vehicles or any other kind of vehicle. Gotcha. So the evo uh, the evolution through an analysis type position at what I probably said, an analysis one, analysis two, and et cetera, yeah. is that imagine the problem, I guess I'm curious as to your thoughts, but I mean, it's it, it's still every day being challenged by problems. It's just what you are, what you're able to stamp as correct is changing. I guess I'm curious, you know, in your, I think yeah. seven years at Roush, you know, how, 
how did your job from the beginning to the end change in terms of in terms of the projects types of projects you worked on and kind of what your day-to-day life was actually like and maybe that was the same because you're kind of still at your computer but curious as to your thoughts on that good point evolution. Um, so obviously, yeah, things changed uh, as I went along in terms of seniority because uh, the the more I went along, uh, I was actually open with my manager as well. Um, I I was a fluid mechanics guy. I was more into aerodynamics and you know the fluid side of things, not so much on the structure side. Um, so w- eventually, once I finished all the initial projects in this amusement park space, I kind of moved on towards uh, fluid fluid mechanics. Um, and it, the simulations that I completely changed because I was now simulating fl- fluid flows and you know thermal kind of problems. Uh, which are again completely different kind of physics, uh, different tools and everything. But the underlying thinking, the thought process is, is the same. Essentially, uh, you kind of figure out what the problem statement is. Uh, th- that's not actually given to you on a plate because sometimes when a customer comes with a particular design that they want analyzed, they, de- they themselves don't know what they want to analyze. They don't know what the, the solution should end up looking like based on their, their requirements. So it's up to us actually as consultants to kind of think about you know what the problem statement should be, what should we look to analyze, um, what do we need to be, warn the customer about, and most importantly, how do you convey these results you know, so that the, they're not only understood, but the, we come across as uh, having given them value. Because at the end of the day, our, our business proposition is we uh, provide customers value by giving them you know, technical expertise that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So a lot of my thinking was geared around those lines, and the more senior I became uh, over the years, uh, I kind of got more responsibility. So initially, I started off helping people with their projects. Then I started doing my own projects without any help. And over time, I uh, kind of went down actually your kind of your path, Troy, uh, where I had to actually kind of write quotes and come up with you know p- uh, proposals so that um, we could actually allocate certain uh, budgets towards specific projects. And uh, even though I didn't do a lot of that on my own, I kind of had help from my manager. But I kind of I was heavily involved in the initial quoting stage of the process as well. Gotcha. So you start to be more of a technical leader in the space. Exactly. Um, having yeah. more people run stuff for you, checking their answers, but then also establishing more connection to the customer on, exactly. in terms of defining what, what it is they need. Because there's definitely an element to that in engineering consulting, having to listen to the customer's words and compute and compute from that the path forward and what needs to be done. Because it's not always clear, especially in consulting, right? If someone's coming to you to ask for help, it's likely that they don't know how to define the problem. And so you have to be able to technically do that. Exactly. And especially if you're going to tie a, hey, it's going to cost this much, <laughs> you got to have a pretty good idea of, of what's going to be at stake so that both parties are happy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's yeah, that's yeah, great. Um, I was, I know, sorry, all through this process, I was uh, finding ways where I could keep my coding skills sharp. Um, so I was never actually sitting back and, you know, like, I was always keeping an eye on uh, the the industry outside of uh, automotive and like, in general data science and everything going on here. Um, so uh, I used to actually actively seek out projects uh, with my colleagues in terms of like, do you have any specific bottlenecks where you feel like you're just doing some tedious manual work that you want automated? Uh, there were cases where people were actually having to you know download data from the National Highway Safety website. It was a federal database of, um, I believe, vehicle records and vehicle um, model name makes and stuff. Uh, and they were actually manually downloading like pages and pages worth of information to store internally. And that involved insane number of mouse clicks where people are just sitting at their computer blindly clicking the mouse. Um, and I, that was one thing where I said, you know what, this, this should not be done by human, this should be done by machine. So so yeah, I was looking to add ways to kind of uh, use my skills and kind of expand on my knowledge in whatever little way I could all through the, through those years. Yeah, that's great. I mean, for those listening, like even even if you don't have an interest in like going coding every single day, like having the knowledge to do a few automate a few tasks 
will set you apart. Every organization that I've been, because I've known coding and been able to help with automating small tasks like exactly. that, has been immense. Things like knowing knowing Visual Basic. If yeah. you're if you're in a company that has Excel sheets for everything, learn Visual Basic and you'll become a god in that company <laughs> because you will be able to automate so many of their processes that they do in Excel. Like there's example, but the extrapolation of that to to literally do anything is something like Python, a more broad language that you can literally interact with with everything. I mean, Visual Basic is largely Excel. Theoretically, I think you can do anything I with think it. it's everything, but... everything to do with uh, Microsoft Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Windows. I think it has some yeah. Windows, Windows yeah, 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 too. Yeah. But it, that's gonna, you're going to hate your life if you have anybody <laughs> there, I think, except for the very, very small few. But with you. Python or like another broad language C, things like that, you're, you're able to do so much and automate so many things. And yeah, if anything, even at the small part, you can make a couple admins really, really happy and they'll exactly. love you and make your life a lot easier. Because if, exactly. you, if you get into a job and you automate a few annoying tasks for your administrative assistant, they will love you. And I guarantee they have a ton of super annoying tasks that they're actively doing right now <laughs> that you can help with. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I have a few examples of that. But I yeah, so anyway, just a small plug for even just basic programming to help other people like you at your job. <laughs> Absolutely. And just to add to that, uh, I think Python is really, really special in general because uh, you can actually interface with many tools at the command line level. So it's not, you don't have to rely on automating it at the application level. You can go right down to the root of your operating system and use Python to glue different applications together. It's a gluing language, which is really, really powerful. I'm going I'm to keep this conversation going off the rails because I have very strong feelings about this. Basically, basically going <laughs> off what you guys have both said. No, so so I, I'm a I'm a, a I'm a less trained Pythonista in my own way. Um, for those of you who are listening, that's like the official term for someone who's really about Python. Um, wow. But I have noticed the same thing at my work because uh, there are a lot of people who do not know how to code or program or what they do know is we use MATLAB in some course in college and it was terrible. And I didn't like it. Um, so I've been using Python a lot to automate a lot of our data analysis or, or like you said, like someone doesn't need to go through and filter a spreadsheet out 60 different ways. Like you can make a quick report for that. And I've seen other people at my work who have been making more advanced tools and other things to fit their job. And they're getting more recognition, more FaceTime with people further up the chain from them. Like their names are going up because they are using these skills that are not directly rated related to engine calibration, which we do on a daily basis. But it's we're making bigger tools that are going to benefit everyone that can really save us time and money and everything down the field, down the line. And I, I feel that there should be a much larger focus on coding in undergrad, Absolutely. that it should be something people have to learn more. Maybe they are. I guess it's been it's been a while since I've been there. So <laughs> maybe they are more. It's chicken in the egg, though, again, because <laughs> it's like, hey, undergrads learn programming. They're not going to be successful because they yeah. don't have a problem. Exactly. Like, exactly. I, I don't know, man. I, it's so it's it's, a, it's so hard. Like, I guess what I would I would agree. But it's like almost like schools need to force them to have an outside of school project that is interesting. I, you know what I mean? Like, that's the struggle. It's like if you tell them to take a class on Python, like, uh, I don't know, you know, but like if they if they were interested, but maybe in maybe there's a way where it could be like find something in your life that's annoying. Let's figure out how we can make it better with programming. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like, like if you could like, take that class for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's yeah. in college, someone curriculars come in, right? This is where being yeah. an SAE Baja, this is where doing these other side things. This is where, you know, doing undergrad research because you're going to be forced to have a problem that you got to find a tool for. And it's not like class where like the expectation is you're going to tell me the tool to use. You're going to basically give me the code to, to type. Maybe you don't give me line by line, but you basically at some point tell me every single line. I just got to figure out what to do. I, 
I don't know, man. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a chicken in the egg situation, even more so than most things, but it's like, so yeah, for those listening, like learn programming, you're going to struggle if you just take a class, like class education can get you a starting point. Like it can help you start, but like, it's not going to help you become an expert. Like it's not going to, there's this intermediate step that has to come through trial and error. And, and a lot of that is really good with projects. So I don't know. Prashant, what do you think, man? Can you, no, you think you can take a so, class or what? No, so here's the thing. So uh, for me, I think the, uh, a language is really, really important. So I, I don't, I'm not one of those people who says you have to learn just Python and don't learn anything else. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like the first language you get exposure to back in undergrad or high school or whatever it is, um, you have to relate with something in that language. And if you if you have a bad experience, like I did with C++, it took me years to recover from that. So um, so I think that it matters in terms of the kind of the mentorship that you have. And I think the way programming is taught in most institutions in all the way from high school through undergrad is really, really like it's got a lot to catch up on this. It's not at the standard it should be. I love I that comment true. about a mentor, man, about like yeah. a lot of my positive experiences in programming are in a language that I had a mentor for. Oh, really? Okay. I had someone I can go ask questions to. Like, yeah, you can Google stuff. You can figure that that stuff out. But if you have someone around you, you can physically go and say, hey, here's my code. I'm struggling with this. Like, help me through this. Like, I don't know. I I'm I know LabVIEW really, really well. It's like a GUI-based. It's more, I don't For know. For experiments. Yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah, exactly. And my PhD advisor is a great LabVIEW guy. And he, I for my senior design before he came to Michigan Tech, I had to do LabVIEW and I hated it. It was I had no one to ask questions to. My life sucked. But as soon as I was able to use the language with someone around me who I could ask questions to, like I loved it and I love it now. And it just I had so I, I love your comment about the emotion around the language and having positive experience and staying exactly. positive. And if you're if you're in a language that you're not having a positive experience with, try something else. I mean, because you're Absolutely. better off learning a different language that you, you have good emotions about. And just, just, to, just to add to that, uh, the, the languages, it's it, actually computer languages and human languages have a lot of uh, like parallels to them yeah. uh, in the sense that um, a language is syntax. I think the way it resonates with you as a person, there is some kind of personal connection you have with the language of syntax. And for me, Python was just a language that clicked. Once I started learning how to use it and it worked for me, I, I actually enjoyed the time I sat down with the computer, even when I had the worst bugs and I was like breaking my head trying to figure out what those bugs were about. I was still not miserable. I was still happy doing it. Uh, and I could not have said the same for anything I was doing with C++ or Java or any other language I had before that. So I feel like depending on who you are, some people have R as that language, some people have Java, some people have completely weird languages nobody wants to work in. It, it totally depends on you as a person. Sure. Do you remember how we learned Java, an introduction to computer science, and I don't think we ever touched it after we learned it for one semester? <laughs> no, no, nothing. It's just and like it even gave us projects and stuff. And like, I think that, yeah, man, what yeah. I've been saying about the whole time about like not, yeah, like learning it and like not retaining any of it largely goes back to CS 101. Exactly. I, I learned Java apparently, but I don't know. I don't even know anything about it today. Like I can't even tell you anything about the syntax right now. Like even, I don't even know if it's at zero, starts counting at zero or one. Like I know nothing. Like I don't, like, the, and it's, I, if I, ha, I know if I had a problem I was interested at the time I learned it, I'm sure I would have at least remembered a lot more. Absolutely. And I think maybe that's the theme that I'm trying to get across to everyone is like, yes. if you're passionate about the project that you're working on, it's going to help a ton when you're trying to learn the language and just trying to learn a language for the sake of learning a language, it's going to suck. It's gonna re like imagine this one's like hey learn Spanish right now why am, am I going to am I gonna go to Spain no okay that's a lot different than someone's like hey you're going to Spain in two months you're gonna be there for three years you should probably learn Spanish <laughs> like that's it. like you're gonna be so much better at Spanish in the second latter latter case so um, 
All right. Okay. Bringing, bringing it back on the rails. Turn it. All right. So we are getting towards the end of our time at Roush. We're doing some business stuff. We're also doing some technical management, but we're starting to think maybe something different. Curious, let's, I guess, pick up there and I guess tell me a little bit about what those thoughts sounded like in your head. Yeah. So uh, I was seeing where I was going for the next five, seven years of my career. And um, I didn't really see myself getting into managing people and the other people's work. Um, to be honest, the management line of work was never my thing. I was never that interested in it. But the more I thought about it, the the way companies are structured in in the automotive industry, or even consulting in that in that manner, um, you don't end up being that technical uh, very very long. You you end up having a lot of other administrative responsibilities, managing other people's work, and so on. And that was kind of the career path I was given. So uh, that was one of the things that really made me question: Do I really want to be doing this over the next ten years? And the other thing was I was really becoming better at Python and coding in general. And I was getting deeper into some of the mathy stuff that people do uh, in the machine learning side of things. I wasn't really doing machine learning projects, but I was still significantly like learning a lot about it uh, by reading on the side and kind of uh, doing my own research. So that's when I realized, you know, I think I have the right raw skill set, and I already have the coding uh, chops. I already have the the mindset towards analyzing problems, uh, and I find that really really interesting. I'm perfectly fine sitting you know, eight hours a day in front of a computer ironing out you know specific bugs that nobody cares about so so yeah i think that's when i realized in the long term at least in the next 10 years of my life i see that being the most rewarding way to spend my time so that's when, and and the way the field is moving right now i think um i was not concerned about um you know yeah it might be a little time before i you know get my footing in the space and kind of figure out exactly where i want to be but um i don't see this trend changing anytime soon data is just everywhere right now i think uh, there's no sh- there's going to be no shortage of interesting problems to solve in this in this space you mentioned that you were like reading a lot and learning a lot on the side. Yeah. Uh, were you doing a lot of this outside of your normal work hours? Cause this was something you were interested in or was it, was it close enough where it was kind of, you're able to learn while at work because you're also applying it. Uh, no, actually it was mostly outside of work. Um, some of it was during my downtime when I was really like not that busy at work. Uh, but for the most part, so one really interesting aspect was the fact that I had a longish commute. So uh, I used to commute for about 45 minutes one way. And uh, I was realizing, I, I, and at 2016, I realized that um, I'm actually wasting an hour and a half every day doing nothing in the car. Uh, and the, the, considering the fact that I was trying to get extra time for learning outside of work, I, was, I, I thought, why not just learn while in, in the commute? And uh, the podcasts were really, really helpful. I mean, there are some super interesting data science podcasts out there, and I highly recommend looking up, looking some of those up if you're interested in getting into it. But um, yeah, uh, that really like changed the way I look at it because the way people were talking about what their day job looks like, the kind of problems they're solving, but not just people. Uh, it was talking also about the technicalities of how to think about a data science problem. And uh, uh, the, the one thing I learned about how to learn new things is don't just limit yourself to reading or like a one, one specific mode of learning. Uh, when you're trying to learn something new, just maximize the, the medium through which you're, you're exposing yourself. So try to listen to people uh, or talk on a podcast, uh, read up on blogs, uh, write your own code, read research papers, like you, you spread across the entire spectrum. And I think that really pays off in the long term. That's awesome. Yeah, the, the diversity yeah. of the medium in which you're learning. Because then you, and I think that speaks to, I mean, how people learn. Like, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but I'm pretty sure there's something to this idea of some people learn by seeing, some people learn by doing, yep. some people learn by listening. And you yeah, you need to activate all the ways in which you learn in, in medium diversity. I and I think it's also reinforcement, right? So if you yeah. if you heard about something, someone talk about something, and then you come across that when you in your own code later on, six months later, and you realize, hey, I actually heard someone talk about it. And then you go back and read a blog about it. And then all those concepts connect in your brain, and then you actually become much better at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's great. I think that's helpful. Can you, I guess, um, yeah, 
I'm not going to go into this idea of podcasts and commute. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of people listening to this podcast while they drive. Because unfortunately, <laughs> so there's so many people that have, I don't know, their situation is they spend a lot of time in the car. And so I think yeah. that's one of the big reasons podcasts are booming. But yeah. Anyways, we'll leave that that topic for a different day. Um, I think it's that's an important point, though. Of use the time, like look at your life and look at the time you have available to learn something. Like maybe it is an hour and a half drive in the car, and if it's not podcast, maybe it's an audio book or something that you could be reading related to whether you're learning engineering or not. But um, or like Brendan, you man, you you started waking like you, you used to snooze all the time, and then you're like, I, I'm did, not I snooze all. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm getting so much better. A half an hour a day, and I'm going to try and spend at least twenty minutes reading. Wow. Like. You can there's there's certain ways to carve out time too. Absolutely, so, and I think it's important to find that time, especially when you're trying to make a make a transition in your life. And and maybe that's that's the point we're at in your story now is probably how you you spent all this time learning. You decided you want to make it. What was the next step? What was the what so, was the jump look like? So that's the thing. I mean, this was a huge decision. I mean, I, lit, I was really comfortable with my job. I was really good at what I was doing. I, I had no problem in any sense, in the sense of the word, right? Uh, so I, I was really worried about, you know, am I making a mistake by leaving all this behind and moving on to something completely new? I've never done this before. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why I spent the better part of two years contemplating this whole thing while I was learning on the podcast and, and reading up stuff. I used to also talk to people. I you know, talked to as many people in the industry and whoever in, in space I knew. Um, I talked to a bunch of my friends, my family, like I was literally talking to everyone I could. And I think that's kind of over the span of two years after all of that thinking, that's kind of when I came to the decision that, yeah, it's time to move on. Um, was so, there yeah. a moment, uh, an event, or was it just like, you know what, I've thought about, is it like like a purchase on Amazon that's expensive? <laughs> You're like, mm, I've looked at this enough. So no, unfortunately, there was no, there was no uh, key moment <laughs> like that, but uh, it was like over a period of, I think, two months towards the end of 2017. Um, I, that's when I began really applying to universities. That's when I, you know, I said I won't make progress until I actually take action. And the action I took was actually really seriously applying to universities for uh, yeah. going back to school. And you might wonder why I chose to go back to school and why not, you know, self-learn and at least take some time off work. Yeah, apply and apply for a job the first time or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the two challenges there was, um, first thing was uh, I was on the US, uh, in the US on a visa. And uh, as you know, that's a little tricky situation, uh, especially with the current tricky. climate. I don't know, but I know it's a lot more than <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you heard. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that was one real big concern for me. I didn't want to, you know, take a risk of being unemployed and, you know, not having time to search for a job. And that, that was a huge scare. And the second thing was um, not having networks and uh, direct con connections to people who were willing to hire you. So that was another big problem. Also, the other problem I noticed is a lot of companies, even though they say they don't look at your degree or past background, technical background, I feel like subconsciously they all know that you can only gauge how good a person is by seeing the credentials on a resume. And a part of that involves what degree you have. Um, so it would be hard for me to convince someone, okay, I have mechanical and aerospace engineering in my in my history. And can I really convert those skills into, you know, like doing something in computer science and data science? Um, so I, I really didn't see myself being able to do that in a, convincingly at that point. And I also wanted to formalize my knowledge and kind of learn the foundations because I'd never actually studied computer science. I, thought, I spent most of my life running away from computer science. <laughs> so, so that's when I said, no, I'm going to put my foot down and go, go for it and not look back. Gotcha. What stands out to me is a similar, a similar theme to this podcast that we see is this idea of like, if you're going to get a master's, use it for a tool. It sounds like you used it to learn some of the basics, possibly build a network. Like that's, and use it to transition. Like those okay. are great examples. I'm for, it hasn't released yet, but for those listening, um, episode 10, uh, Kevin talked about this idea of he used his, his master's in business to transition to business. But he also did a very similar thing to you, Prashant, which is interesting is that he thought about his life trajectory and right. said, I don't want that. Like, and that's huge for those listening. Like think, think five, 10 years from now Absolutely. on the path that's laid out for you. 
is that where you want to go? Because when you get there, it's going to be a lot harder to change then than it is now. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah. So just another great example. I just want to point that out, you know, so this is the technical side of this transition, but what I love, we also in episode 10 have uh, the business side of that transition. And what's cool is that it's it's the same broadly. It's realizing that the path forward isn't what I want. How do I do it? And what does it look like? And it's great that, that we see these steps from you, man. It's, you know, it's, it's not easy, but it can be done. And I think, you know, it starts with thinking about the future. Definitely. And, and, and there is some amount of trade-off. I mean, the short term is going to be miserable. Uh, the transition was really hard for me. I can't even begin to describe to you how hard the transition was uh, coming to school, going back to school after working in industry. Uh, it is a complete shift in mindset. I mean, I realize how, like, I feel like when you're in university, you are, you're completely gearing your mind towards an academic uh, style of learning, which is basically, um, I would say academic learning is more focused on extreme short term. Like you're looking at those four, that four month period for a particular course, passing a particular quiz or an exam in that course and writing a particular report or an assignment in that particular format that they asked for. Um, and that's a very different skill than actually being out in industry, talk, thinking about open-ended problems that nobody's you know given you before and you having to think out of the box by doing your own research online. Two totally different ways of thinking. Uh, and yeah, I really found it hard to switch back to university mode again. <laughs> How hard was it also switching to, even though you've been, you've been studying it on your own, switching to taking a master's degree, like instantly stepping into a master's degree of something that you don't necessarily have a direct undergrad degree in. I think sure. it can be easier to transition. Okay, you initially you did your undergrad in mechanical engineering, you transitioned to a master's in mechanical engineering. Makes logical sense. You had all the prerequisite classes done. Now it's like I'm taking a master's where if I look yeah. at the prerequisite list, you're like, good point. So, so the, the, here's the thing. Uh, if I'd applied to a direct computer science master's, I might have found that harder. Uh, the one I've applied to is a little more focused on da- big data and data science. Um, so this specific program actually is geared towards people who have computing or mathematical backgrounds of any kind, not necessarily computer science. And uh, so the prerequisites were not as stringent as you might expect, like complete you know, deep dive into algorithms and data structures and that kind of thing. Um, it was more about um, operating systems knowledge, basically knowing about how Linux works, uh, basic exposure, uh, significant exposure to programming, which I already had before that. Um, so things like that, I mean, it was more, uh, I would say, feasible for me to actually uh, convince them that I had those skills in, in my statement of purpose. How are you able to tease that out, right? So you, you Google, you, you start looking at this list of universities yeah. online. How were you able to tease out that that was what was happening at your university? As a po- you know what I mean? Just for those listening that may want to do a similar thing, like how can they know what types of words really to look for on their website to know that that's the case? Sure. Um, so depending on the kind of career you're looking to get into, right? So the key thing to remember is this two completely, uh, I wouldn't say parallel, but uh, the kind of branched out career paths. Uh, software engineering is one path and data science or machine learning is another path. And they kind of ha- go hand in hand in many ways. You can't actually separate the two, you know, that that's uh, clearly. But um, the key thing to remember is um, if you want to go down the path of software engineering, um, you need a very relatively different skill set. You need a lot more focus on uh, computer algorithms, uh, knowledge of algorithms and data structures and uh, fundamentals of computer science, essentially. And that's partly because software engineers are mainly focused on um, scaling up code that act, that runs in production systems and um, basically um, developing a workflow uh, that is well tested and does not fail when the system is actually running in a business scenario. And and that's that's it's a really big challenge in you know companies of the size of like Netflix and YouTube and Google and all of that. So um, that's a very different path than data science, where you're looking more from an exploratory standpoint. You're looking at data and you're trying to figure out how you can use that data to make business decisions. Uh, And that requires more of an analytical mind. Um, So 
while you do need programming skills, uh, you don't need to be that, uh, very, very deep into the, the algorithm side of things. You can go more in terms of um, knowing what models to apply and what interpreting those models means visually. So, so when, when you're thinking about what, what to apply for, look, look up programs that are specific to your, those particular interests. If you're interested in the software engineering side of things, make sure the program has uh, coursework and, and prerequisites that lead you towards that path. Uh, in my case, I was very clear that I was going down the data, data uh, science road. So uh, I looked up programs that very specifically listed these requirements. And, and in many ways, the websites were pretty um, clear in the way they describe, OK, you need to have these, this particular background. Uh, make sure that your coursework in these things are, uh, are pretty, you know, straightforward. And they weren't very, you know, like um, it, they, they, they obviously want to make it approachable to people from outside of computer science. This is not a closed space for only people with undergrads in computer science. And if that were the case, I, I don't think uh, data science would be exploding the way it is right now because there's too much demand for in all industries for data scientists. And I don't think they would be able to fill that if they just, you know, accepted people from one background. We've been saying we've been saying machine learning and data science for for 15 minutes in this yeah. interview uh, without maybe actually properly defining it. Can you yeah. give us uh, may, maybe the broad the broad picture of what is all encompassed within that? Sure. Actually, good point you brought that up. Um, so there's a very common confusion as to the number of kind of titles that you see in job postings or you know, we hear about. There's data science, there's data engineering, there's data analysts, and there's machine learning engineers. And this is a whole spectrum of uh, positions or like responsibilities that you can come across. Um, and there's differences. They're, they're not exactly the same. The word data comes across a lot. Machine learning comes a lot. Essentially, machine learning is um, it's basically a way to use a predictive modeling approach um, using data as an input. Um, and you essentially train a model on, on specific data that you have. And you use that to make predictions on future unseen data. That's kind of the basics of what machine learning does. Uh, it, it identifies patterns in your data and kind of helps you. It learns from those patterns and helps you make decisions from those patterns. Uh, it's, right. it's a way of avoiding yeah. machine learning is a subset of art, artificial intelligence. Sure. Uh, and I personally don't like the term artificial intelligence that much. It's more of a marketing term. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you could call it a subset of AI because, yeah, I mean, to be fair, um, AI was the original uh, idea that came about in the 1970s, uh, back way back before computers became mainstream. But the theoretical ideas for AI began in the 1970s and uh, more recently, maybe in the last 20 years or so, that's when machine learning, the term machine learning has picked up a lot in, in that space. Sure. So, so yeah. I, I did want to make a quick plug. So for those listening who want to hear more about what it means to be um, like a software engineer or controls engineer, if you listen to episode seven with Justin, he's a, a controls engineer and or he's a software engineer, but he's really heavy on the algorithms. And like I use very specific algorithms to define it. Yeah. Whereas Eric in episode five, also a software engineer, but he um, he's doing more of like uh, data processing, data analysis, but it's it's in a very confined like space. Like I'm, he was he's yeah. at YouTube, so it's like how do I get YouTube videos to happen? It's not necessarily like I just have this random cluster of data. How can I get information out of it? Which is more the machine learning space. It's, it seems like, um, and I, I guess help help me understand. So machine learning is it? I guess the difference between machine learning and um, I think neural networks, I'm sorry, I, I'm trying yeah. to get, but there's like this idea of machine learning. I think I'm going to let you answer. I guess what's the difference between machine learning and like neural networks? Are they the same? Sure. Is that a yeah. So neural networks is, is, is just a, a technique or a model, uh, a kind of a technique that you apply, which is a subset of machine learning. Okay. Machine learning is a broader term. Um, so essentially, neural networks, uh, they kind of use a, a kind of a distributed approach. They have uh, individual units called neurons, kind of loosely based on the human brain neurons. 
Uh, but essentially, the, the whole point of a neural network is uh, using multiple layers of these neurons arranged in a certain way. Uh, you can pass data through those layers. Uh, the data is obviously processed and kind of converted into a format into, into matrices. And then you perform linear algebra and a bunch of calculus kind of operations on these, on these matrices. And then convert that into something that you can produce as an output. So essentially, your, your model learns from real data and then is able to make predictions on that. So a very simple example of that is what Google does with its image recognition. So if you have a Google search and you type in um, uh, a name in, in, in Google and search for an image, it's able to use the uh, the value that you say, uh, that you entered and kind of give you images that are based on that. And how does it know that an image is a, uh, an image of a dog or a cat? It's based on machine learning. It kind of learns how to associate uh, human inputs to what's in the image based on just the pixels and the kind of uh, the way it's learned from that data. Gotcha. We're talking here about machine learning um, in the context, obviously, computers and easily like Google image search is a way to think about that. But yeah. what what are the other industries that the machine learning is going in? I know I've seen some of it in automotive already, which you might not think about because we're yes. not necessarily making a computer interact with we're making vehicles. Absolutely. Um, but who, who's looking to hire people in this space? Um, so it's pretty much anyone or everyone. Um, you can actually use machine learning in a huge range of industries. Um, for example, retail, um, any online shopping kind of scenario, uh, they're using tons and tons of machine learning to uh, basically identify patterns in people's shopping behavior. So essentially, when you shop on Amazon or any other online website, um, they kind of find a way to uh, use the data that, uh, in a way that they anon anonymize your data, so they don't actually know who you're, exactly what you're doing all the time. But they basically collect data about what you've been buying, and then they have metadata about you, about your age, you know, where you bought from, what kind of product you bought, and so on. Uh, and they kind of use that to predict, okay, uh, what kind of advertisements should be, or what suggestions should be shown to the person based on what they entered as a suggested item. So if you if you buy something like uh, electronics, it'll suggest a bunch of things like you know earphones or computers or TVs and stuff like that, stuff that are related to that topic. Um, right. I so, think as engineers, what gets confusing for me as I kind of think about the space is like, yeah. I often think that there has to be an equation to model the result. Like if I'm given data X and Y and I want X plus Y, like I can use the equation or the model X plus Y, it gives me my answer. But there's, so there's like input equation yeah. output in the idea of machine learning in this space. It's like, you don't need to know the equation. No. It figures out the equation exactly. for you. It's an, you it's need, a learned you, relation. Exactly. You need input black box output and yeah. that's good and bad one you never know what's in the black box so when you're yeah. trying to figure out why the output is you don't know but in in other ways like i think the reason one that seems the reason it seems so applicable is you don't need to have modeling equations like okay you could say well what's the modeling equation for whether troy wants to buy more electronics mm -hmm. i don't know like there's, there's that's not x plus y that's some other weird thing like how he's feeling today and whether or not it's 3 a.m and he can't sleep like who knows <laughs> who knows um but like you know that's that's kind of the cool part about it i think yeah from what it sounds like to me what you're saying is like if you have a large amount of data and you're trying to get information from it they'll hire like that those are the industry which is every industry for the most part, exactly right? I mean, except and, for niche application niche yeah. industries that don't have data Exactly. And this isn't uh, limited to like things like images. I mean, the stuff that I'm working on right now is, is based on text. So uh, I'm currently working in a research lab here in the university, and uh, I'm basically working on news content analysis. So I basically uh, work on uh, analyzing the news article content from Canadian uh, English outlets and uh, analyzing the topics that they're covering, basically scraping a bunch of data from the internet, um, getting those articles as raw text, and then processing that text to understand what topics are in that text. Uh, you basically can't 
predict that topic unless you actually give it a ton of data, right? So the model learns and kind of gives you an output in terms of, okay, these are the broad distribution of words, and then I interpret that as a topic. And that kind of gives us information on, okay, these topics cover so-and-so people. The author of this topic was, you know, uh, of a particular gender. Uh, the people are, so-and-so people are quoted in this article. So it, it, there's a way to identify actually individual people names, a person's names in the article. And it, it's really interesting to analyze the relationships between all of these things using machine learning. So what are the, what are this, I guess, we've talked about a little bit like the class's intro to you to this, but now that you're yeah. done with this master's, like, tell us about like what you gained, you know, like, what did it give you? Like, did it give you this, this framework, like, you know, like if you could summarize a few points of what you feel like you really gained from the masters, what would you say they were technically? Sure. Um, okay. So the main thing I gained, I think was um, one of the big things I gained was the networking ability within my own cohort. So um, learning from people who my, my peers and my colleagues, uh, basically being in a room with like-minded people. I think that's a really big plus point, something you may not get when you're doing self-learning. Uh, that's one really big plus point of it, uh, coming to coming back to school. Um, and the other thing I feel is um, the fact that data science and machine learning, this whole space, uh, because you're essentially learning algorithmically and kind of uh, allowing a machine to kind of you learn from data, uh, it's very industry agnostic in the sense that um, you can generalize your skills across different industries. For example, uh, in my previous uh, job, I was working last year in the Royal Bank of Canada, which is a, a financial organization. Uh, so even though I'm not very, de uh, you know, deeply involved in finance and I don't really know much about, you know, the financial transactions going on, um, my, my goal again was applying uh, machine learning algorithms on la uh, language related tasks like what I'm doing right now. So uh, every organization has a need for specific aspects of machine learning. It, it may not be very uh, industry specific. Now, of course, it helps if you know a lot about the industry to begin with, uh, but it, it does not mean that you're, the door is shut if you're not from that industry to begin with. So I think that's one really big thing I gained from this program where I... Um, I kind of you gain general skills um, that I, I feel I can apply in a range of industries, all the way from retail to insurance to banking, and you name it. So, are you learning those approaches? Like we talked about neural networks as a, yep. as a technique for machine learning. Are you learning just a bunch of different type of technique or approaches that are better in certain types of situations? Exactly. So, so it's okay. Hey, we have data in this format, and you're like, well, I learned about these approaches, and so I think I'm going to select this one to start with because. Like that type of stuff? To be honest, yeah, that's kind of, uh, you kind of learn how to uh, understand which models are appropriate for which scenarios. I mean, not all models are applicable equally across the board. Um, and you obviously learn the different kinds of machine learning techniques. So whether whether if you don't have uh, enough data, then you have to apply a certain different approach. So as, so as you mentioned, yeah, it, it's kind of um, gearing your mind and learning how to experiment with these techniques and use them in the real world. What... What advice do you have to someone who who wants to get into this realm, who's interested in it, whether they're whether they're just starting undergrad or maybe they're in the same position you were of they've been kind of learning about it tangentially and want to get into it? What's what are some big key pieces of advice you have for them? I think the biggest piece of advice I would have is uh, don't chase after job titles and salaries. Um, I think both of those are pretty meaningless uh, in the sense that, um, to be honest, this is a field where if you do a decent job and you're in a decent team with a decent company, uh, the job and the salary, job title and the salary will find you. You don't have to go chasing after it. Uh, and I, I feel like the main reason that is is because uh, many people look at you know the blog posts and articles out there saying data science is a sexy job and you know that kind of thing. And you've got to realize that a large part of the job is is not as glamorous as it looks. Um, it's there's a lot of phases where things that you're just stuck and you don't know what you're doing and uh, projects are moving slowly and things like that. I think the the, the thing that sets uh, good data, data scientists apart from a not so good one is uh, the passion for self-learning. 
basically not being idle. Uh, if you have that passion, you make sure that anytime you're not, things are not going the way they, they should be, um, use some kind of external portal like Twitter or you know some kind of social media or something to learn from other people. Um, get out there and kind of learn about things before um, kind of deciding that the field is not for you. And I feel like if you if you started this thing by looking for job titles and, and salaries and things, uh, when when the hard times come, you're actually going to be very negative about it and not not approach it the right way. So so that's kind of what the biggest advice I would give anyone entering the field: uh, just be passionate about something and find the area that your 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 key passion is all about. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And another, I think, big theme of the show, and probably, I mean, realistically, one of the big reasons Brendan and I started this is trying to get people to find jobs that they enjoy more. Because if you like your job more, you're going to be doing more outside. You're going to be better at it. You're going to be enjoying the hard times more. You're gonna you're going to make more money in general. And that, and that, that, but what's funny though, is like, I say that, but like for the people that love their job, like it's not about the money. So it's like, I say that, but it's like, if you actually got into the position of enjoying your job, you wouldn't care about the money. Like we're really fortunate as engineers to be in a space where if you found a job you like, you're going to make a salary that's good enough to let you, let you survive. You know, it's, it's, for, for the vast majority. And so I, I think yeah. fortunately we can give the advice of find a job you love and if you're not going to worry about the money and you're going to enjoy going to work and you're going to be, you know, researching other stuff on the side when you get home and it's going to be enjoyable. And yeah, when things are hard and difficult, you're going to like it. Exactly. But that process is really, really hard. It's really, really well, because I mean, the obvious counter is, well, I don't know what I like. And that's a, that's a fair counter, right? I mean, it's, it's easy for us to be like, yeah, just find the job you like and you'll be good to go. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, great. I don't know what I want to do. What do I do now? Like, so fair. If you're listening, totally fair. But how you start, I think, is you start listening to people, listen to podcasts, listen to experiences, researching different areas to find what you maybe don't like. Try internships, try experiences and things. Um, and if you come away from that experience saying, I hate it, perfect. That's good. That's good information. You realize you don't like that area and then try to hone yourself in towards something that you like. Um, so I think that's, that's some great, that's some great advice. You, you said it earlier in the podcast, Prashant, and I love it. Like what drives me? Like you started out with that question when you're trying to make the transition, what drives me? Like, that's great for those listening. Start with that. Like what, what drives you? What, what are you, what's, what do you get excited about? What, when you get home from a long day at work and you want to do more, more research, like what, what are you, what information are you pulling up? Like with Prashant, like he's pulling up podcasts and articles about machine learning and data science. And that's great. And you get excited about it. So I think that's, that's a great theme, man. That's awesome. I love that. I would definitely say along the same line, something I've heard recently is that like, what, what do you lose track of time of doing? Like, what is the one thing? Cause, cause in you, in, in your job shot, that could have been like, I like the CAE stuff that the analysis stuff I'm doing, but it's really, I lose track of time when I'm, when I'm coding, when I'm doing exactly. this stuff related to it. Like you can kind of pull out bits here and there. And, um, and, and something else I found has been helpful is, is I think a lot of people, maybe it's just me can have a lot of interest even within engineering and they're like i want to learn this i want to learn that i want to learn that and it can be hard to like focus on one and i found it's been like okay i'm going to spend you know this week these two weeks this month i'm just going to learn that thing and at the end of the month if i don't like it i can switch and i can look up something else whether that's listening to podcasts reading articles or doing whatever and i think people can slowly filter through different things and eventually get to a point where they find maybe that one thing that they combined it with what am i spending time on oh i really enjoy doing this let's explore this more yeah. Yeah. Cause it's so, especially in the hard time, like as an engineer, like your life is dealing with problems that are not solved. Like, they're, like essentially, I mean, unless you're like, yeah, you're always dealing with problems. So you're, it's always going to be frustrating. There's always going to be failure and you got to figure out how to work through that. And it's so much easier to work through that if you're enjoying what you're doing and in this, and at least in a topic of interest. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, that's something I'm sure I'm sorry, I bring this up because it's something I'm continuing to struggle with now is this idea of like, how do I accept failure and struggles and enjoy it and continue to move on? And it, it, I don't know, that's, I guess for those listening, like that, like everyone goes through that. And I think people, one big outcome is like, well, if you're in, at least in the, a domain you like, like it helps a lot. Cause you know, if you, like if you hate working on like sales and clothes and market, like then don't work in that space. Cause it just seems, it seems obvious, but I think what's not obvious is for to be a fly on the wall and look at your situation and realize that that might be your current situation. And, and, um, and the point you brought up about failure was a very good one because I think yeah, to be in this field, I think data science, it's it's very important to embrace uh, failure because things are not going to go well all the time, and it's it, you come out much stronger once you see what you didn't do right in any of these experiments that you do. Uh, not not just in terms of a project, but also in terms of applying to a job and not liking a particular role and things like that. Um, so I think yeah, it, it's that it completely changes your outlook towards the next challenge that you face if you've gone through a certain number of failures. So I have one kind of technical question for you. It's something that I'm struggling with in the machine learning space. So your CAE role, like it it kind of makes sense to me, like in this idea of like, okay, we have this system, we're trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. I do this model, it gives me this answer. And the next step as a CAE engineer is always like, well, does that answer make sense? Because, you know, you hit, you hit go on the model. It's always going to give an answer, right? And the good CAE engineers, from my perspective, always like went back to the, well, I did this little equation on my, on my notebook and I'm within 20% of that. So we're probably close. There's that kind of stuff. But that seems not possible in the realm you're in because it seems like to a large extent, there's a lot of, well, push buttons. It gave me a model. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? Can you help me understand like what, how, sure. what, what the difference is there? Because it seems really like, I don't know, different to me. And it's not clear to me what happens once you get a model and then you're like, okay, well, is it good or not? How does sure. it... Uh, so the way this is normally done is uh, when you train a model on existing data, um, you kind of separate, you break down that data into like a training set that you use for training the model and then a validation set. The validation set is literally meant to be unseen by the model during training. And once you get something trained, you run the model on the validation set and, and uh, verify the, the numbers that it gives you. Uh, and typically, the, there are a number of metrics that we use to track, depending on the problem, depending on the kind of problem. Um, so you could use like accuracy numbers or you know like um, harmonic mean measures. And there's a bunch of other n- different metrics that you use to uh, quantify that, okay, this model actually is, is of a reasonable accuracy. Um, and if that is an essential step in every single machine learning problem, you cannot release or publish a model without actually proving that it's, it's performing in a certain uh, validation set. And the good thing about the current progress in the field right now is that there's a number of benchmark models, uh, benchmark data sets that are come out. So these are actually, oh, cool. these are literally vetted and uh, tested out by some of the biggest companies and research organizations. Um, they basically make sure that the, the data in the, those data sets is clean and, and, and easy to interpret for a, diff- a wide range of models. Um, so most people, when they publish a new model and, and you want to verify, want to use it in your work, uh, you would always test it out on the uh, benchmark data sets to verify that it's accurate enough for you and then adapt your model and then and test it out on your own validation data after that. And, and without that, there's no way you can actually convince anyone that your model is good or bad. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that's all. Yeah. Sorry, it's a very specific question, but it's just something that was always like, this doesn't really make sense to me. It seems kind of like people are like, yeah, here's a black box. I'm pretty sure it's good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, okay, validation steps. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. Well, I think we're we're about coming up on time here, um, but is there anything else you want to share with anyone listening? Like, I feel like we covered a lot of different stuff today from f- finding a passion to machine learning to everything, like uh, any parting words? Um, actually, to be honest, I think these, these were the main things I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, all the stuff you brought up at the end is especially, I, f- I feel really relevant for people trying to get into the field. Um, from my experience, I mean, I can tell you that um, 
you don't have to be like the world's best computer scientist or anything to you know kind of think about changing careers into you know software engineering or data science. Uh, you can be self-taught. Um, uh, getting a master's is not the only path for you. I mean, it, it may not be the best path for everybody. There are constraints in everybody's lives and things like that. So, uh, yeah, think about what what's um, most suitable for your circumstances, and always find a good passion that you think you can carry your you know interest in the field on for the next several years, so that you don't you know end up uh, five years from now questioning why you made that decision in the first place. Gotcha. And we've said a couple times different things, other resources like you said. I guess if you had a couple on the top of your head, other resources people would check out if they're interested, other podcasts or blogs or things that you would on you could name to sure. say, um, hey, check these out. One of the real like the podcasts that really helped me out early starting off in data science, it's called Linear Digressions. Um, it's a very popular data science podcast. It's available on SoundCloud and a bunch of other uh, applications. So... Uh, the, the, the good thing about that is they supply bite-sized information, so you don't have to like listen to one-hour episode and like uh, get overwhelmed. Um, so I would say it's a good starting point to understand what data science is all about. Uh, as for blogs, I think there's a number of blogging websites out there, so I can't really think of a good one like at the top of my head right now. But um, yeah, th there's enough and more open-source material out there for you to read up on you know different projects going on in the world, in the, in the world of data science. Cool. Awesome. All right, man. Well, it's been excellent. Really appreciate it. Really interesting. It sounds like you've had quite the adventure. I'm really, really glad that you're able to come on and share it. I think Definitely, people will find yeah. it really, really interesting. Really, really I, I really appreciate that you guys are doing this because I'm sure it's going to help out a bunch of people. So yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you guys. See you guys. All right, Thank you. Bye. Well, there we go, man. Another great episode. I love, yeah, I love, I, I love the diversity and stuff of different people coming on. This one was great. Just, I don't know, was such a cool story. A lot of different changes, a lot of things to learn from. Um, yeah. What did, what did you like, yeah. man? I mean, there's so much stuff to pull away from. No, what? yeah, there's so much stuff. I, I, I probably could have kept talking to him for a while. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's just really awesome how he was aware of, of what he was doing at his job, but also finding this other thing he was interested in that was was related to his job but it wasn't necessarily it and he saw like here's something else i might be able to do that i i find myself really enjoying i find myself spending time on i'm, I'm listening to podcasts in the car about it i'm not listening to podcasts in the car about you know analysis engineering but i am listening about data science like let's make that let's make that jump into that because i think lots of times we can get stuck in uh, here's where i'm at here's what i'm doing this is my job this is my career uh oh this might be fun on the side but that's my hobby uh, instead, he he took that and he said, no, this is something I want to do. I want to pursue it. I'm passionate about it. And I think being self-aware like that and really paying attention, not just letting things in life pass you by where you could have like, oh, there, there's the train. I need to jump on it because that that's the opportunity I want to ride out for, for the rest of my career. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's, it's such good advice. It, you know, it, it's easy to stay stagnant, but I don't think it's the path to happiness, I, I guess, is my opinion. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I think it continues to be the theme we see. Um, I think the other thing that I really took away was this idea of even big picture things can be applicable across bounds. Like, for example, he talked about how his, his world in CAE was data model answer. And that's still his big picture thought now in a totally different field, a field that you think would be not, a, not vastly different, but definitely different. It's even his big picture thinking skills were still applicable in his new role. You know, you might think, well, I know a specific skill. I know MATLAB and that might be transferable to a new type of job. But even the way you approach problems in big picture thinking is often applicable between new jobs. And so you might, 
I don't know. I think there may be people who are listening who are worried that I have to go and learn everything brand new. And that's scary. And that's why I'm not going to make my jump and make my leap. Well, you know, in Prashant's case, there were so many similarities that there wasn't really a ton that he needed. I mean, he, I think he recognized his need. His need was the the language to know, like, these are the type of tools that I have in my toolbox. Like, and once he has that, he can just run with it. But it's, there's often just like small areas that you can improve on. And you can do that through different things. He did it through a master's degree, but you can also accomplish it different ways. Um, so I think I really took that away is like making what seems like big jumps might not be as big as you think. Because yeah, a lot of the skills you have now can be applicable in, the, in where you're going to go. I agree. I think that's almost been a common theme when we were talking to Meha a few episodes ago. It was, I got a degree in biomedical engineering, but like I can use those skills in marketing and, and where I'm at in that and consulting. And and I think that the engineering skill set does open a lot of extra doors. You just have to open up your eyes a little bit to see how it applies in different ways without pigeonholing yourself. And I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm an automotive engineer, I'm whatever, like, no, you could do lots of other things because, because problem solving is a kind of a universal skill in lots of ways. Uh, and then some of the technical things can easily transfer. Right. So yeah, a lot of great information there. Even, I don't know, I could more, even more to unpack. I thought it was cool. That was really good. I'm sure there's a lot of people interested in this space, whether or not it's for a career change, but even just interest in general. I know it's, it's quite the buzz, even for myself. Like it's something that I'm actively learning about because I think it's fascinating. So yeah. yeah. Great, man. Cool. Another awesome. episode down. Woohoo. Looking forward right. to the next one. Thanks, everyone, Heck for listening. Yeah. Hope you have a good night. See ya. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.